Here we are at Pod and Market, and here we are at Season 2. Before we get to this episode's distinguished and legendary guest, I would like to take some time to reflect on the past year on the podcast, our successes, our failures, and our hopes for the upcoming year. I promise I'll keep this brief. It's no easy feat that we were able to pull off 20 episodes this past season. The first people I have to thank are the crew here at Newark.fm, and especially my sound engineer, Bahid Frazier, who's been here for nearly every episode, Saturday mornings. <laughs> Next, I have to thank our wonderful guests who devoted their Saturday mornings, unpaid, to share their perspectives here. Finally, I have to thank our listeners out there in the ether, not only for downloading each and every episode, but for sending me and our podcast team here positive feedback and suggestions for future episodes. I've already had two episodes come about this way. Initially, I wanted the show to be a panel discussion where invited guests would tackle some issue that was important to the city, <clears throat> similar to Vox's The Weeds uh, Policy Podcast. You'll notice that our first two episodes follow that format. However, I had to abandon that structure. It wasn't because I hated it or thought it was unfruitful. Um, it simply was difficult to get three people here together with different viewpoints who were willing to share those perspectives publicly and be here on a Saturday morning. If you live in Newark, one thing you learn about this town is that everybody has an opinion about what's going on here, but sharing that opinion in a public and recorded form is a different matter. I don't blame them. There are many good reasons for holding back, especially when your career, your networks, and your, your reputation are on the line. It's a format that I wish to pursue again in the future, but I'm open to panels for episode this, um, I'm open for more panels this season. Since I could not do the panel every two weeks, I opted for an interview and conversation format, which I really do enjoy. By doing these interviews and conversations, the podcast has been able to explore some interesting voices and personal histories, like we're going to do today. Interviewees have included artists, performers, politicians, family members from my own family, and other New Yorkers with unique stories to tell. From these stories, I hope you've been able to form a mosaic of this city. I also hope you've had as much fun listening to them as I've had having conversations with them. So where could this podcast be better? Where has it failed? First, I'm always worried about how much talking I do here, like right now. Um, I think I've been getting better at talking less, but there's always room for improvement. Second, while I've, been, uh, I've tried to bring on a diverse set of guests to this show, I do realize this show could be better at bringing on more voices, especially from those you don't hear as often. This is partly due to the limitations of my own network. While my roots run wide and deep in the city, I grew up here, I was born here, they definitely do not cover all the ground here. This is where I need your help as an audience. Please send in your suggestions, especially if you have someone you know who can speak to some issue or perspective that needs sharing and is connected to Newark. We've already had a couple of shows come about this way, and I'm hoping my inbox continues to grow with more of these suggestions. If I missed anything here in this reflection section that you think could make this podcast better, let me know through the podcast email. Anyway, I'm really excited for this upcoming year, especially with a year's worth of experience under my belt. I'm excited to explore more topics, to explore this amazing city and its inhabitants further, to ponder these deep questions, to confront issues, and just to really um, talk. You know, that's an important thing to do here is just to talk. So now that's over, reflection done, um, I want to introduce our guest uh, for today, Liz Del Tufo. So I'm going to read a quick bio of her right here. Liz's role as a Newark advocate started in 1973, when she and other concerned residents formed the Newark Preservation and Landmarks Committee. The committee was established to saving and restoring and promoting the city's rich historical and architectural history. Since then, the committee has helped to save and restore structures and sculptures, one official protection and public appreciation for 73 landmarks and six historic districts. To bring public attention to Newark's history, Liz founded a Newark tour program which has brought hundreds of people to enjoy Newark. Liz was appointed the Essex County Director of Cultural Affairs in 1980. In that role, she established the Summertime Concerts in the Parks program, oversaw the conversion of the abandoned Army Missile Base into Riker Hill Arts Park, and founded the Newark Arts Council. All these programs have continued and thrived as an important component of the Essex County arts scene. Liz served as the first executive director of the Newark Boys Chorus School from 1986 to 2000. During that time, the school enrollment doubled, an endowment was created, and the boys gained increased popularity as Newark's finest ambassadors. For these efforts, Liz has been given many awards to inclu uh, that include an honorary doctorate from NGIT and a key to the city from two mayors. She serves as the president of the Landmarks Committee, an advisor and cheerleader to the, uh, for the Chorus School, and a trustee of Newark's 350th Anniversary Committee. 
So we have Liz here, um, and I figured we'll start off our conversation with an interesting thing that happened. Um, so um, I've met Liz before. Um, she uh, She's just sort of a legend in this town. And I know that she her roots here run really, really deep, but as we walked in in the studio, there's a, a picture of Dr. King with Coretta. And uh, uh, we were looking at this picture, and it's right next to the door. And uh, Liz uh, said, oh, yeah, I, I remember meeting him. And I was like, like blown away, especially because this is February, and it's Black History Month, so we're all pretty in, uh, tuned to um, black history and, and the civil rights movement. And I just wanted to ask Liz, what was that like? How did that happen? Uh, it was amazing um, because, of course, he was uh, amazing. On his last visit to Newark, there was a reception being held for him. Um, and my late husband had been invited to it. Now, my late husband, who was an extraordinary man, and the reason that I came to Newark in 1960, um, uh, had um, a multiple sclerosis and was confined to a wheelchair. Uh, the room that the reception for Dr. King was being held in was not wheelchair accessible. So Ray had to send his reg- regrets. Um, just to show you what an extraordinary person Raymond Del Tufo was, uh, Dr. King uh, reacted that he would like to meet him privately then and for them to find some place that was wheelchair accessible. Um, so we uh, met in the Terrace Ballroom at Symphony Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, Ray and I got there um, when Dr. King walked in with Reverend Abernathy, um, there was something palpable that happened to the room. He was that sort of presence. Uh, We sat down with him. We talked for about half an hour, um, especially Ray. Uh, Ray had been United States Attorney, uh, appointed the first African-American um, to um, the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, and um, that was it. So when we got the news that Dr. King had been murdered, um, it was a devastating blow to us so personally at that time because his presence was something you you really never forget. Yeah, I mean, just to orient the, the our audience in the history, this is... Um, he came here in March '68, and this is about. Uh, he would eventually be assassinated in April fourth. April, right? And so this is you met him a few days. I think not even a week uh, before he, um, you know, tragically was shot in Memphis, Tennessee. That's just astounding to think that, you know, the history of Newark intersects so much with the history going on outside the city, particularly with Dr. King. Um, and it's astounding that like there are still people around who have those memories. Like this is not some distant place in the past. It's still very much embedded in people who live in this town who met him when he was visiting here. Um, but thank you for sharing that. That's a really, really cool story. Uh, but I want to bring it to you. I want to bring it to your history in this town. And I just wanted to ask you, um, especially in Newark, where there are a lot of historic sites, what was it like beginning the Landmarks Committee back in 73, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So how did, how did that come about? Right. Um, uh, well, as you know, uh, July 1967 was a disastrous yeah. long weekend in Newark. We were here, you know, experienced the um, the whole thing. Uh, my husband loved <clears throat> Newark. He was passionate about Newark. Um, and it was, you know, it was pretty bad. Uh, Ray died in 1970. And... Um, um, What was happening in Newark then was wholesale demolition, um, lots of fires. Mm -hmm. Um, The city, you almost could just see the city kind of disappearing uh, before your eyes. Now, preservationists um, believe that architecture is our history. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can point to this building and talk about the events that took place there. It gives us something to hold on to, sort of. And Newark deserved a lot better 
than mm-hmm. what it was getting in the 1970s. And we felt strongly about that. So a group of us just thought that if we could protect, you know, architecture neighborhoods through designation to the state and national uh, 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 registers, um, that <laughs> that it would be something. Uh, certainly we didn't see it as, as the be-all to end-all, but it turned out to be an incredibly mm-hmm. um, vital step. Um, the powers to be um, sort of didn't take us too seriously. Um, it was kind of like they patted us on the back mm. and, oh, that's nice, and go ahead and do that, which I'm kind of delighted that they did because I think 75 buildings and six historic dr- uh, districts yeah. is is uh, an amazing um, record. Yeah. Um, I, I had the chance last year to read um, Robert Caro's The Power Broker, and this reminds me, I don't know if you're familiar with the of Robert course, Moses and Jane course. Jacobs fight. Yes, yes. I, I've always been told you're, you're sort of the Jane Jacobs of Newark. Oh, um, wow. Um, flattered. Yeah. And that, yeah. I mean, obviously, Honored is a better word. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I mean, she was a legendary figure in her own right, but do you feel there was a similar thing going on in Newark where not only um, obviously you have the forces of of destruction from 67 of just the the anger that built up and that caused um um a lot of people to lash out but i'm talking about also just the the powers that be as you mentioned were they um were they a roadblock did they envision you know the first thing i think of is like 280 you know kind of bla- plowing through right, right. um the old 7th avenue um italian neighborhood was that the kind of forces you were fighting against I, I don't think they were that monumental, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Manny. Of course, you know, two eighty by then, right. uh, you know, was uh, you know was a completed cause. Um, um, uh, but um, and of course, as bad as two eighty was, it was the urban housing philosophies of the nineteen fifties that put us in the vulnerable position mm-hmm. to let nineteen sixty seven happen. Yeah. If uh, the 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 minority community of Newark had better housing in 1967, uh, this would not have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were we were not for fighting forces that that right. huge. Uh, basically, the uh, the first uh, formidable foe that we had was Rutgers Rutgers oh. University uh, because they were bulldozing. James Street, University Avenue, which of course was Plain Street, mm-hmm. um, just wholesale bulldozing of those areas. And then you add that, of course, to what was happening up at the University of Medicine and Dentistry. Um, and there had to be a lot more sensitivity, um, uh, you know, involved in that sort of urban planning. And I think that, that our creating um, this semblance of a road back uh, a roadblock um, made it possible to have that discussion right well it's it's um this actually dovetails into I think James Street was your first or the James Street historic Commons was your first right. Um, right. Uh, historic <clears throat> district and I just want to talk about how did that happen because you know when you walk over to James Street it's actually very close to where I work you see what I didn't realize was what m- most of that area and, and downtown Newark and other parts too looked like, right? So can you talk about how you were able to preserve that at least one corner from, you know, the destructive forces that came about? We were largely, um, uh, we were blessed by the fact that at, at that point, the Washington Park area was really um, the concentration of a lot of uh, corporate in in Newark, you had Blue Cross Blue Shield that were still in in mm-hmm. that building. You had Mutual Benefit <laughs> that was yeah, yeah. there. You had the New Jersey Bell Telephone Company. You had First National State Bank. Those corporations were strongly on our side. Wow! Yeah, um, they wanted to see um, they wa- they wanted to see that preservation effort. They wanted life. In the the Washington Park area, um, they did not want to see it become sealed off, you know, from 
uh, from the city, which it would have been it if it had all been bulldozed and become part of the you know the Rutgers domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the fact that we were able to convince these corporations, who of course wielded a great deal of power in Newark, because they were staying. Mm-hmm. Now it turns out the telephone company left mutual benefit, you know, collapsed, right. uh, et cetera. But that Prudential is still here, right? Oh, were they Prudential. a supporter? Or? Yes, yeah. yes. Prudential was absolutely. Prudential, of course, was down the road right, a bit. Right. True, yeah, true. so they were not an integral part of our James Street thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Prudential has uh, always been uh, a supporter. Prudential has just been amazing mm-hmm. in in the city. But we were fortunate in getting those corporate leaders, mm-hmm. Von Fossen, Robert Van Fossen. Mm-hmm. Um, to be vocally on our side so that they were able to convince Ken Gibson that, hey, we're not asking too much. You know, you've destroyed how many blocks. Um, give us just this, this little area. Mm-hmm. And, um, Ken, of course, listened to them. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was, uh, that's how it happened. Wow. And um, so we said there, there's, um, you said there's six now, or at least in your, in your bio, there's six historic districts. Are they all located downtown or are they all different parts of Newark? All different parts of Newark. I mean, I really think we've covered the city pretty well. James Street Historic, uh, the James Street Commons Historic District, mm-hmm. um, which includes Washington Park, right. uh, the Military Park District. Right. Um, the Four Corners District, mm. which is incredibly important um, there. Which is where we get the name of this podcast, Pot and Market, Fraud uh, and Market. Of course, <laughs> of course. The Lincoln Park Historic yeah. District, incredible history, gorgeous architecture. Ah, move over South Newark, the Weekoik Historic mm. District, a, a vibrant neighborhood within the city. Uh, with a great history, and then you go up to the Forest Hill yeah. um, uh, Historic District. So, um, what, what I love about this, with the exception, obviously, of Four Corners, um, these are all places that are have always been re- residential or are becoming residential again. I mean, I mean, obviously, James Street has always been residential, but the surrounding of Washington Park was largely corporate or an institutional. But what we've seen over the past 20 years is um, mutual benefit is now Rutgers dormitory. So it's living space for people, right? Um, the Bell ta- the Bell um, building, which then became Verizon, is now the Walker House where I people know, are living, isn't right? Great. Right? I live on Military great. Park in uh, the old you live um, in left court. 1180. Yeah, 1180, oh, the old left court. I love court. it. I love it. Yeah. And it's just crazy to think that, like, those seeds that you all planted back in the, in the 70s and the 80s are now bearing a, an interesting kind of fruit. I don't think you, I don't know if you expected people would be living in these districts. I mean, what did you imagine when you were doing these? I, I don't know. I yeah. don't know what we imagined, except the fact that we had to preserve them at some point. Um, I mean, we believed in Newark. Mm-hmm. And at some point, um, uh, something good would happen. Right. I, I mean, I don't think we were given the luxury of that foresightedness. It's interesting because of Newark's people <clears throat> were living downtown mm-hmm. up until about 1820s, 1830s, you know, like that when they uh, kind of not moved out, but then um, Newark was such an industrial city, right. uh, 1826, 1910. And then it kind of became a financial center with all the insurance companies. It was at that period, the late 1800s, early 1900s, that people started to move out of Newark. Uh, We've got a couple of um, mansions downtown Mm -hmm. Newark. Some are really endangered um, that represent that, you know, the people that were living in Newark. And now, of course, we're uh, we're seeing, as you say, people coming back to Newark to live in Newark. And, Manny, I'd like to make the point that the reason that developers are attracted to um, the telephone company building, um, the First National State Bank on Broad Street, uh, the 1929 uh, yeah. 1180 uh, Raymond Boulevard is for the historic tax credits yeah. that make their development doable. Yeah. So none of this would be happening in downtown Newark. The Haynes Building 
if the developers did not have those historic tax credits yeah. to, to work with. It, it's not even the tax credits. I don't want to insert too much of my own opinion and bias here, but um, I will say that um, a lot of my generation, what we call the millennial generation, is deeply attracted to reused space. And um, to have the foresight to preserve something as opposed to giving in what to what I call the impulse to destroy um, is turning out to be to have been a good thing. I mean, a, a good counterexample to what you just described is the Westinghouse site. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, you know, do you know what I'm talking about right of next course. to Broad Street Station? <laughs> I remember that building when I was a kid. Mm. Um, it's now gone. It was destroyed sure. as, um, I think, an attempt to build something which never came about. And now it's just an overgrown lot with weeds. And I'm thinking in Jersey City, they took a similar uh, site. It was, uh, it's now called, it's called the Powerhouse or whatever. And they turned those into apartments and retail, the kind of stuff that people think are sexy now, right? Yes, and like all kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah. So not even just the historic tax credits, but the actual like where people want to live and what they think is cool, exposed brick, you know, original wood, that kind of right, stuff. Right. And I'm thinking, oh my God, we lost that, right? That could be you're, a development. You're, you're absolutely right. And the thing that, that I like to warn the city fathers about mm-hmm. or anybody about is, is, you know, it's a trend now. Your generation it doesn't want to fool around with cars. You like walking to where you work. You mm-hmm. like getting on a train and going to Manhattan. Um, that's the way I'd like to live. I mean, yeah. that's the way I grew up. Um, but then you got to the point in the 60s and the 70s that cities were not cool. Mm-hmm. The suburbs right. were, was where it was at. You know, there are trends, and we have to really treasure you guys that are living downtown. I don't like it when people start complaining about um, all the action downtown. Do something for neighborhoods. Um, uh, listen, these people downtown pay their rent, pay their taxes. Somebody has got to support this city, mm-hmm. a city that is almost 80% tax exempt. Mm-hmm. You've got to get structures and people, and you have to get that vitality downtown. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have a vibrant downtown, you're not going to have vibrant neighborhoods. Right. right. And I think a vibrant downtown also, uh, this is a big debate going on um, about gentrification, revitalization, whatever you want to call it. We've talked about it on this podcast before. And I was reading this um, this document, I, I won't say which one, but they talked about um, sort of reorienting gentrification, but making it from within. And I think I've interviewed my brother on this podcast. You probably haven't listened to the episode, but um, it, it was a couple episodes back. My brother left this city. He's not coming back, at least for the foreseeable future. He's living in Boston. And one of the hard parts about it is simply he just finds that there's not as much stuff to do here, mm. right? Mm. And, uh, and I want to be able not only to attract people. I think that's important to bring people. New York has always been a city of immigrants, whether those immigrants are coming from Eastern Europe, from Southern you know, Italy, or from internally in the United States, the Great Migration, those are people coming from the South. Or even if it's just young people, you know, a genera- you know, uh, professional migration, not just, um, you know, um, um, migrants coming for economic and safety reasons. And, But I still want to keep the people who grew up here who have a sense of continuity. I'm always afraid of Newark becoming Washington, D.C., the city that's mostly transplants, right? And with no sense of itself, right? They're all there just for to, to advance themselves in their careers. Um, and this is not to, to really complain on D.C., but I have a lot of friends down there. But I do find it a very, very strange town. Um, <laughs> whereas if Newark can still maintain a sense of its own nativeness, I think that's really cool. And the, I think the way you do that is you create – you preserve buildings, right? You create interesting structures. You revitalize the downtown space. But and that's you not push, easy. And you take care of neighborhoods, Neighborhoods are the backbone of the city. You're yeah. talking about Jane Jacobs earlier. Mm-hmm. Neighborhoods, that's what she saved. Up until the 19, uh, up until after World War II. It was after World War II that the undercurrent of bad things were happening yeah. in Newark that eventually, you know, the exodus from Newark. Suburbs, again, were cool. Uh, GIs could get mortgages mm-hmm. in the suburbs, but the African-American veteran couldn't get that mortgage in in in, in the suburbs. Uh, the, the urban housing philosophies, all those bad things just really mm-hmm. uh, 
doomed in Newark uh, because up until then, the Newark neighborhoods, mm-hmm. I mean, you talked to, you grew up in Newark. You know what neighborhood you grew yeah. up in. Everybody you talked to that grew up in Newark n- knew their neighborhood, knew what bus they yeah. took to go downtown. And Newark is so small, 24 square miles, mm-hmm. that you know, downtown impacts on the neighborhoods, neighborhoods impact on downtown. Newark is not a sprawling megapopolis or yeah. or something like that. It can be managed, but you have to give real thought to, you know, preservation of neighborhoods, pride in yeah. neighborhoods, um, and and pride in downtown and take that bus downtown yeah Yeah. well it's funny that you mentioned neighborhoods um so i this is i'm gonna wrap this into where you live um you you live in forest hill and i I can imagine a lot of the listeners who live in newark are probably rolling their eyes being like well forest hill is a special place but it is it it, is special in a good way but also meaning that it's um it's very different from the rest of the city also Mm -hmm. just the way the houses are structured and the kind of the income level the people who live up there um, but you do maintain a neighborhood. I mean, this is fascinating. When I went up to Porch Fest, we did an episode on Porch Fest. It's actually when I first met you. Right. Was uh, I came to your uh, you, your house? You weren't hosting anything, but I, I, someone invited oh, me. In. Hula dancers. Oh, that's true. That was later on. But I came yeah. before that oh, happened. Okay. Um, and Jean Mazo, a, yes. a mutual friend of ours, um, brought me in to to to, to meet you because I had I had already heard about you and I wanted you on the podcast already like a year ago, and. Um, uh, I was amazed to see this network. Uh, network's not even a good word for it. This community where every everyone in Forest Hill knows each other. It's kind of crazy. I mean, everyone went to the party at, I, I don't want to uh, uh, say who it was because it, this is our own private house, but there was a party for the whole people who ran the, the Porch Fest. And it felt like there was all of Forest Hill was at this party. Right. Can you talk about like what what do you do up in Forest Hill to make sure you preserve that sense of a neighborhood, even though there's a lot of people coming in and out of it? Ooh, wow! That's uh, that's that's such a that's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first moved to Forest Hill, it really it kind of wasn't like that particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, after 1967, um, there a lot of people moved out, but a lot of people stayed. Yeah. and I kind of think that was the Italian thing. I think. You know, I think there's ethnic differences in all of us, you know. And I think the uh, the Italians put down roots. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Jews are always looking for a place to move. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody told me that's why they wear two hats, you know. <laughs> uh, um, but um, And so a lot of Italians kind of did stay in Forest Hill. And that's when it started to really form... Uh, as as a community, mm-hmm. uh, because it was and 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 I really credit Steve Adubato and the North Ward Center for also doing a great deal to pulling together Forest Hill to make sure that it didn't um, that it survived yeah. because a lot of neighborhoods weren't right. um, surviving and and it's kind of grown on that. The housing is very attractive. People were attracted to the housing and <coughs> also attracted to uh, the public transportation yep. in Forest Hill. That's yep. a biggie. We have the subway. Uh, yeah. We have the 27 bus. We have the New York bus. We have the 99 bus. So those are really biggies if you're going to attract people of yep. your generation and, you know, uh, into the community. And as people came into the community, no matter what, ethnic they were, no matter what color they were, no matter what religion mm-hmm. they were, they were all absorbed right. into the community. Yeah, I'm a bit of an evangelist for the, uh, the the light rail. I mean, the fact that you can get from Branchbrook Park Station to Penn Station it's great. in 15 minutes is astounding. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think um, if there's going to be something that helps bring about all of Newark's comeback, not just downtown and right, the Ironbound, right. um, it's going to be something like the light rail where people can have reliable, fast, and effective transportation. And I think you're right when you, you harp on transportation. Um, to Actually, you do mention a lot of the urban um, housing policies of the uh, the 50s, 
The funny thing is, when you say that, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about, and and a lot of those projects have since been abandoned or or uh, destroyed. But there's one building that I think is part of that project that is astounding to look at, or four, it's a set of four buildings really, which are the Pavilion and Colonnade apartments designed by Mies van der Rohe. I'm wondering, how do you feel about about those particular buildings? What are they? Because they were designed initially initially as urban housing projects, weren't they? Or am I wrong? Not as low-income projects, okay. right. They were not subsidized. Um, they actually, um, and Mies van der Rohe, from what I hear, had uh, really uh, got pretty angry with um, the city when they tore down the old First Ward mm. um, to build the Columbus homes. Yeah. Uh, Mies van der Rohe... Uh, Imagine the pavilion and the colonnade, and between the pavilion and the colonnade would be this quintessential urban housing, tenement, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, but thriving, which which the old First Ward was. And then when they came around – now, Manny, you tell me. Yeah. um, You didn't have a big need – for public housing in the old First Ward. You had blocks and blocks yeah. of Italian people that were living, were working, were paying taxes, uh, loved, loved their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Why was the first public housing up there? Yeah. It should have been in the central ward yeah. where people were had were not happy in their neighborhoods yeah. when there was overcrowding yeah. when there was a lot of code violations things like that um the columbus homes maybe sometime you'll investigate it yeah. in depth uh, unfortunately that was an example of a lot of money passing under the table that didn't benefit the people that lived in the community or the people that moved into the community. Wow, I, I that's a, that I, I knew about the, the the controversies around the destruction of the first ward, Seventh Avenue, whatever you want to call that area. Yeah. Um, I what I don't know if you saw the uh, the listeners can't see this obviously, but I don't know if you saw the level of shock on my face when you said that Mies van der Rohe, who I associate with, you know, Le Corbusier, these like great glass and steel architects of the 1950s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, that he wanted. I didn't know this that he wanted his structures to actually be surrounded by these old school exactly. tenements. I did not know that. That is blowing my mind. Because, now, that's what I heard. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm not saying I'm, you know, <coughs> but I've been around a while. So, yeah. but that's exactly what I heard. And then he he had a lot of arguments with the, yeah. uh, the devout. And of course, um, then the the city's uh, uh, counter argument was we're going to show that sort of well to do people can live in the pavilion and right. in the colonnade, uh, right next to poor people in subsidized housing. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't work. Yeah, and it didn't work because nobody ever invested money in taking care of the Columbus homes. Yeah. And then, of course, cities became increasingly poor. They were not getting money for support from the federal government. Then you had the Vietnam War with drugs pouring into our urban areas. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that affected the high-rise apartments. They were taken over, you know, by drug warlords. I mean, they were so totally unsafe to expect a, a... a poor person to live in conditions like that is disgusting, yeah. to put it mildly. Now, you know what I find so intriguing? Uh, they finally got around to tearing down the Columbus homes. Yes. They were almost empty yeah. at the time they tore, they tore them down. And they built low-income subsidized housing where you can live in an apartment that is commiserate with how much money you you make. Right. Now, when you look at the Winona Lipman housing right next to St. Lucie's on 7th Avenue, though you who would know that that was low-income housing? Right. If you give low-income people a quality place to live where they feel safe and secure and proud of their digs, yeah. they'll take care of it. So now, 
over 50 years later, Mies van der Rohe can see he, you know, right. more well-to-do people are living very contently next to subsidized yeah. housing. Now, let's just to stick with that little area, I don't want to spend much more of the podcast on it, but I don't know if you've heard about the uh, what I was told, because this is coming up as a controversy right now, that part of the original plan also meant for that little hill part that comes down to where the Burger King is and where um, oh, oh, um, oh, right, um, right. the the Episcopalian parish is, right. um, was supposed to always be an empty but public park space, which is now fenced off and their plans for development. I'm wondering, have you had any thoughts about that or about messing with that original plan that Mies van der Rohe had? I uh, that's the first time I've ever heard oh, okay. that. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that property has been empty. Um, right since yeah, the fifties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, amazing, yeah. isn't it? Though um, I had always heard that it was supposed to be developed into a a um, kind of a shopping plaza. Oh. That it was supposed to provide uh, amenities for. Um, the pavilion, the Columbus homes, mm-hmm. et cetera, because of course there were none. Yeah, I mean, actually, the people that lived in the old First Ward shopped on Seventh Avenue, mm-hmm. or they went down to Broadway where the Jewish merchants were. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when they destroyed Seventh yeah. Avenue, and you know, Manny, they had to turn people's mm-hmm. water off yeah. to force them out. Mm-hmm. of their houses, the neighborhood opposition was so great. Wow. But you find that what happened, not only did 7th Avenue and that thriving community disappear, the Jewish merchants on Broadway also disappeared. Yeah. You know, the little synagogues is there? Yeah, uh, Tavares Shalom, I think. Tavares uh, Shalom. Yeah. Right. That was built by the merchants. I always wondered about this because this uh, – when you grow up in Newark, you learn this is a very segregated city. And even though the the groups that used to live in particular areas are, have largely gone, like you know the Polish people of of the Ironbound, the um, the Jews, particularly of the South we- and West Ward, Weequake area, I didn't really. I grew up in the North Ward, and I was basically told my whole life that th- there have always been Italians here. There's never yeah. been any other group. Um, now it's obviously a lot largely um, Puerto Rican, Dominican, um, so a smattering of Portuguese here and there. Um, but I always wondered why there was a synagogue on Broadway because there were merchants now. I did not know this. Yeah, the because merchants you, yeah. built the synagogue for their services, and their customers were all those Italians yeah. that lived in the old First Ward. So <coughs> when they destroyed it, they they also all the Jewish merchants had to leave, and they left this the. The yeah. synagogue totally isolated, but which is now the uh, New Jersey thriving. Yeah, it's a New Jersey um, historical museum, Jewish history museum. Well, it's yeah. but it's a operating synagogue. Oh, it's that too. The, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, the yeah. only one left in Newark. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of crazy. I was joking with someone the other day, like, trying to explain to them. So I don't know if you know, there's um, the plot against America is going to be on HBO. This yeah. is Philip Roth's yeah. novel. And I'm trying to find someone to come on and talk about this. And it's funny to explain to people how Jewish this city was. And I, I like to – I used to joke with people. It's like it was one of the largest Jewish cities outside of like you know the Pale Settlement in Eastern Europe. Um, and that there were so many Jews here. I think it was the third largest yeah. Jewish Right settlement in in uh, uh, you know in in the United right. States and, right and with that there's a lot of synagogues and a lot of these synagogues have had other lives some of them unfortunately have been destroyed especially if you go to the South where there's a couple that are only the facade still stands mm. but there's one on I think it's Irvine Turner that's now a Baptist church right um, there the, um, um, the Greater but Newark it's closed it's closed now oh is it really that's yeah, a gorgeous building in, that's B'nai Jeshurun. Yeah. That was the first congregation, first wow. Jewish That's congregation. That's why it's the biggest. But no, 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 no. no. They, 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 the first synagogue yeah. to be built in Newark was on Prince Street, Ohab Shalom. Okay. Yeah, but but B'nai Jeshurun was the first congregation. And mm. then, of course, when they became huge, yeah. that's when they built that palace. Right. But unfortunately, it's um, it's in foreclosure. Oh, that's unfortunate. That would make that would make it a beautiful museum or oh. some kind of alternative space. Oh. No, why couldn't you do like you did at your workplace? Oh, yeah. Audible. Yeah. Wouldn't that be marvelous? Yeah, the um yeah. what Liz is referencing is the Innovation Cathedral, which we have public tours for Saturday of every month. Um please uh please sign up. <laughs> but yeah, we took the old Second Presbyterian Church and turned it into a tech workspace. Yeah, I think that's actually a lot of the future. Of um so a good example actually is uh, in terms of synagogues is the Greater Newark Conservancy. 
Um, that was one of our yeah. great victories. Could you Manny, talk about that, please? Manny. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> Ohab Shalom, as I say, who built the f- built yeah. the first large synagogue. When they went from Prince Street, well, Prince Street was called uh, the Baghdad of the West. I yeah. mean, there's marvelous photograph of Prince Street with all the push carts and yeah. stuff like that. Oh, Sorry, ba- so you mean cool. Baghdad in the old, yeah. like really cool when it was the capital yeah. of the Islamic Empire and <laughs> a beautiful city, not Baghdad that circa city, uh, 2007. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, oh, Ohab Shalom became, uh, 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 the Jews kind of went from Prince Street to High Street yeah. to Weekwake. Yeah. That was the, the, the and then, to, uh, to the suburbs, yeah. uh, Livingston. Which is basically Orange. Goodbye Columbus. Oh, if you yeah. ever read that oh, novella, yeah. that's basically sure. the story right there. Sure. Um, uh, but when they moved, when they built a much larger synagogue on High Street. Which is now MLK, right? Yeah, which yeah. is, oh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's going to be High Street to me <laughs> right. forever. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and um, Ohab Shalom became Metropolitan Baptist. Yes. And then Metropolitan Baptist, um, uh, Havninian bought that property. Yeah. And Havninian wanted to uh, buy Metropolitan Baptist and tear it down. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of preservation battles uh, mm. over that because, of course, it 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 it, it uh, signified two ethnic groups in Newark that are incredibly important: the Jews and the African American, mm-hmm. because it went from being a synagogue to an African American Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Just an amazing history. So, make long story short, we won it. Sharp James gave it to the Greater Newark Conservancy, and as you know, it's a Beautiful adaptive reuse of uh, an old building. They've done. They do classrooms in yeah. it. They rent it out for public spaces and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, just a, I want to do a quick survey with you. So, what places in Newark do you think are most under threat that need to be preserved? Uh, specific buildings or or districts? Do, is there anywhere in Newark that you think, oh no, maybe they're moving too fast, or there's a building that you think could use a little more love from the city, from or the neighborhood, from residents? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, obviously, we just touched on those uh, the the synagogues. Yeah. I mean, B'nai Jeshurun slash Hopewell Baptist Church. Again, the Jewish migration, the African-American vi- migration. It would be so wonderful if that could be bought and rehabbed. Um, uh, charter school, maybe. Um, mm. And also B'nai Abraham up on... Um, um, what do you? What's um, Clinton oh, Avenue? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Abraham. Yeah, I know exactly. Benet Abraham, yeah. of course, uh, the the most famous um, rabbi at um, uh, Benet Abraham. Um, oh, I know who you're talking I'm about. Having, he was Prince, at the Prince Rabbi yeah, Prince. Was he, he, he was at Yo the March Cam in Washington. Prince. He yes. was at the March in Washington in 1963. Yeah, yes, yeah. There's a yes. picture of him and Dr. King. Because I've seen that. when he spoke yeah, yeah. at the March on Washington, he said it is appropriate that a prince go uh, before after a, king. <laughs> a king. That's that is you really know, funny. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, which is great. So Rabbi Prince, who escaped Nazi Germany. Yeah. Who uh, who spoke loudly in the United States, a voice in the wilderness mm-hmm. about uh, Hitler and what was happening in Germany, mm-hmm. and as we know, not that many people were paying attention. And of course, uh, Dr. King, having visited that church, so the history of that church again. Both those synagogues, I think, um, are. Big, big, mm. big concerns. I think also another concern is is buildings that are not on the register. I, I, don't we have to be a little concerned yeah. about the iron bound? I, I was thinking the same thing. That's mm. the first one I think of because people think of the iron bound. Oh, of course it's going to be preserved, but no, I, I, I have this dark feeling that it's just going to be high rises. Yeah, there's a there's the, the very literally the very first episode of this podcast was a discussion about what's going on right outside Penn Station in one of the parking lots about building this very, oh, very right, tall building. Right. Yeah. And one of my favorite views in New York, there's a lot of great views, but one of my favorite, it's a very simple view, but it's walking on ferry towards downtown. And you're sort of in this small place looking up to these big buildings. And there's like a steep, uh, a, a stark divide between downtown and the Ironbound. Right. Downtown being the heart of industry, the heart of finance, rising up in the air, and the Ironbound being more family. 
you know, right, right, more neighborhoody. Right. And I think you need both. I don't think you should be one or the other. I think right. both. But I get afraid that the ironbound, the wrecking ball is going to come very quickly. We've tried to do historic districts in the ironbound, but we've always been told that it's not a contiguous, you know, contiguous group of buildings that they've been altered and changed and this, that, and the other thing. And I don't know, every once in a while we still go back, maybe yeah. down around Independence Park. I was going to say Independence Park would be the very could, first place I would could, think of. Yeah. We, could, uh, we could look at. Another <clears throat> area that concerns me a lot, Manny, is the Clinton Hill area. Mm. There is some beautiful architecture uh, up in the Clinton Hill area. Um, if I wish, I really wish that, well, we're not going to see it in the federal government, that's for darn sure, um, but I wish there was some sort of program that did give, give urban home buyers mm-hmm. um, uh, tax credits or even outright grants mm-hmm. to rehab oh. some really, you know, great housing. Yeah. If you drive through Clinton Hill, you come across some little streets that there's one, oh, Homestead Park, mm. something up on Clinton Hill. Um, it's got these old-fashioned street lights, and it's got this wonderful little park in the middle of, of the neighborhood. But yet you, we, we were thinking of putting it on the register, doing a nomination, yeah. uh, but like every fourth house is like falling apart. Yeah. Now, if you could only encourage a buyer to come in, and as I say, tax credits, what, whatever, mm-hmm. and fix up that house, um, oh, we could do so much to make yeah. Newark a boo, great city. Yeah, no, I, I can only imagine. I mean, like, you know what I also get nervous about? I, this is already a historic building, but I also... <coughs> I, I happened to be at a party and I got to meet the new director, but and and I and I and I support her um, again. Not to show too much of my bias, but I really support her fight to get more money for the Symphony Hall. Oh um, yeah, of course. I mean, think about it. that's a place where Dr. King spoke. You said in the Terrace Ballroom, right? And the Rolling Stones, <laughs> you know, later that decade uh, per, or not the same year, I think, performed there. Um, and I mean, obviously, all, more power. To, you know, all power to NJ Pack and doing the great events mm. there. But Symphony Hall was the original spot where the New Jersey Symphony used to play. And why can't we have two? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, did you talk? I, I'm always surprised they haven't talked about um, doing, you know, uh, uh, upstairs from the concert yeah. halls. They're just oodles of rooms. They, they do use them. I've been there and I've talked to her. They, they do use them for classrooms. they don't use all of them. Well, maybe not all of them, but they definitely Why use them as classrooms. Why don't they talk about doing rentals up there? Yeah. Oh, you would know because your Newark Boys Chorus School is literally yeah, right around. Yeah, uh, which they're right tearing there. down. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah. 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 And build. So why can't they build rentals on top of the concert hall? That might be hard just because I don't know if the, maybe it's a sound issue or something. But I would just love Carnegie to, Hall yeah. does. Wait, people live above Carnegie yeah. Hall? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know this. Didn't oh. you see the movie Green Book? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that could be a long time. Doctor, doctor, what's his name? Uh, the, 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 the pianist, yeah. right? The, yeah, in live, the show. Lived I didn't up know that. above Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a thought with yeah. me. Why couldn't you have the concert hall and, and have rental units, um, upstairs? Yeah. Mm. Wow. Um, mm. Yeah, it's There's so, also the old Essex County Jail site. Yes. Oh, I had Miles Zang, um, Zayman's son, Zayman. oh, uh, okay. on this. Miles, on, yeah. yeah, I had him on the show to talk specifically just about pre- preserving that site. That is a really cool site, and um, it's kind of sad that it's really. I mean, granted, it's a place of trauma for many people, uh, including the the mayor's uh, father, but it's also a historic, important site. Mm-hmm. Um, and doing something about it is, I think, definitely top ten list of the city in terms of preservation. I think. People may disagree, um, but it's exciting. I mean, this has been. A, I mean, I've been enjoying just going through the city and just like spot by spot. Um, Go through the yeah. Clinton Hill area. Yeah. Drive around through there, Hunterton Street. There's a wonderful farm up on mm-hmm. Hunterton Street. Yeah. Um, um, but as I say, the architecture, the, the the what you know, you could just really create such great, great neighborhoods. Yeah. And again, Newark is so small. Yeah. That the, why can't we do um, do more? Well, my my biggest fear is the pressure. Um, uh, uh, Liz, have you been through Harrison lately? The new Harrison. I want to oh, call yeah. it new Harrison instead yeah. of old Harrison. Yeah. 
My biggest fear is what I what I jokingly call, and I think people roll their eyes every time I say this, the postmodern hellscape of um, of these buildings that are all yeah. this like kind of weird new postmodern design. It's not even yeah. postmodern anymore; it's like post postmodern of um, just sort of mixed medium. I'm not against. I, I try to be open with architecture. In fact, I've gotten very upset this week um, with. Uh, I try not to mention them on this podcast too much, but. The, it was revealed that in the White House there's this oh, yeah, draft yeah, 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 executive yeah. order bounding around because yeah. we live in an era where we just want to create conflict. Um, the master of good taste. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where uh, So the federal government is thinking about revising um, the federal guidelines on architecture, which have been in place since 1962 and were written by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which yeah. is like shows you the yeah. pedigree of that, of, of the, that um, um, order. And the order was designed so that the... Moynihan basically said the government should be following what our architects are saying, not the other way around. Right. And what's going on is there's a pressure within the administration to force all um, federal <laughs> buildings to con- um, to conform to the Greco-Roman standard. I was a classicist. I studied ancient La- uh, ancient Greek and Latin, and I love that stuff. And I'm I think the federal, the old federal building where I worked, I was a, a law clerk to a judge. Um, I love that building. It's a beautiful <laughs> building. That's the old Greco-Roman style, but also the Peter Rodino building. Um, was that already built by when your husband? No, that was after your husband passed away, I think, right? They built the. No, that yeah. was there. That was there already, the right? Show. And that's a modernist right. building, right? right? And right. You, like, these things can look both <clears throat> great. Coexist, yeah. of course, of course. So the reason why I mentioned that is, I think a lot of pressure for developers is to build what they think millennials are attracted to, which are these mixed medium, um, very cheaply built. I'll say because I, I know my 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 fam- my grandfather was in construction my 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 dad somewhat is and or or is into real estate and i know when i see cheaply built things and badly <laughs> built things and um these buildings are building built really fast and kind of shoddily and the design is doesn't is not even that great um right. i think and that's my personal opinion I, I don't know if you have a feeling that this is what the pressure is here in newark do you think so or to build those kind of buildings well no i think you're absolutely right i mean to build uh, <clears throat> uh, what we call the Bayonne Box. Yes, the Bayonne yeah. Box. I just learned yeah. this recently that that's the name for all these buildings that started popping up when yeah. I was a kid, when I was like 10. <laughs> these uh, three these three family structures that are all look exactly the same. Right, right. Yeah. If you go through the North Ward down around <clears throat> Broadway, between Broadway and like Mount Prospect Avenue, yeah. oh, some great like row houses mm. are being torn down and being replaced with Bayonne boxes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, old houses have old plumbing, old electricity. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of work to maintain. Yeah. So you like to buy a Bayonne box and everything is new. And yeah. and then when it gets old, you can tear it down and maybe you'll have another it's a, yeah, box. It's, it's not even been 20 years. Some of those already look like they're yeah. kind of like, uh, this yeah. looks like it's time to build something new here, which is weird. Um, as opposed to like a 100-year-old house, which is still standing. I mean, we don't... Obviously, we've lost some of the artisanal techniques to build stone houses and, and brownstones and whatnot, but I'm hoping maybe there's a push to well, bring that Well, that's why back. it's so important to kind of save the good stuff yeah. that we have and let it coexist, yeah. I mean, with with uh, the old the the old stuff, I mean nothing. I don't I don't like to preserve a building just this for the sake of preserving a building. You like to see it like Haynes and eleven eighty mm-hmm. uh, contributing and being part of you know now now mm-hmm. being contributing. Yeah. Um, uh, but <clears throat> you know uh, again, I wish there were tax credits, grants, and stuff like that. Uh, they would have to be selective, yeah. um, uh, but it, uh, I, th- I think it'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you. This is a, a lovely discussion. Um, it's great to have you share your history here. I'm hoping that this podcast is not only a discussion forum, but an archive. And I hope this conversation becomes an archive of um, your history in this city. And thank you so much for what you've done. And also for the Landmarks and Preservation Committee and their um, their work. Um, so I want to end this podcast the way we end every podcast, which is uh, what are you most excited about in Newark right now? Well, um, uh, this morning a friend of mine called me and said, turn on Channel 4. And I turned on Channel 4, and there was my neighbor, uh, a man that li- he and his family lived down the street from mm-hmm. me. And there he was introducing Channel 4 
uh, watchers to his house in Newark, New mm. Jersey. Um, that is so wonderful, yeah. I mean, to see that. I remember distinctly uh, how many years ago it would be if we were traveling and people asked where we lived and we said, Newark, you'd kind of get this fish-eyed look. Yeah. Uh, but I love this new respect that Newark um, is getting. And I am incredibly happy about the fact that buildings, um, the districts that we put on the register those years back when people all thought we were crazy that are now just this vibrant part of the new Newark. I grew up, Newark was a destination city. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Montclair. My parents were born in Ireland. Uh, they worked as servants on a big estate in Upper Montclair. And the big deal for us was to get on the bus and go downtown Newark and shop at Bambergers and eat at Child's, which was on the corner yeah. of Broad and Market Street. Wow. Newark was a destination. And I see it becoming a destination again. This evening, my my partner, my longtime partner, Don, and his daughter, she's coming up from Brielle, and they're going downtown to the Devil's Game. Yeah. I love it. Newark yeah. has to be a destination city again. Yeah, I think that is right. Um, or even just a place, not even just destination, but just a place where, you know, people oh, feel vibrant yeah. and whatnot, right? Yeah. Um, but, of course, it's interesting, the retail situation. Yes. You know, Newark <laughs> was once the shopping capital of New Jersey. Right. And um, shopping, you do shopping online <clears throat> now. Um, but I am so happy about what's happening in Newark. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm and gonna, my part in it. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, uh, piggyback off that because um, last night I was at the Brick City Comedy mm -hmm. Review, which meets up in uh, the upstairs part of Kilkenny's. I don't know if you know Kilkenny's oh, right. on Central and Halsey. Um, yeah, that's the old. Uh, we even talk about the Irish of Newark. God, of all the groups, we talk, we missed out the Portuguese, the Poles, the 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 Irish. Um, my parents never. My parents settled in Montclair. Right. No. Of course. Yeah, yeah. 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 But no. I'm saying. Yeah. But the that area was the hub and <coughs> oh, still is. Of course. Of, no. I'm um, just easy. My yeah. parents went to McGovern's all yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah. Which just reopened with the new building yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, but we were at, um, just to see. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but the Brick City Comedy Review. Um, has grown. Um, there were 75 people attending this comedy show, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot for that room. Yeah. Um, and I, I, because I help with the running of the program, I saw new faces there, which is astounding to see people, not just college students, but like, you know, working class, not working class, uh, working age adults um, coming to the show. Um, and just to see the vibrancy of it all, to see New York performers coming into Newark, to perform um, is just astounding. And then once the show is done, to see that same group of people then all migrate to Jimenez Tobacco, the cigar place over near uh, City Hall, and then after that to QXTs, the the club, the very very interesting club. <laughs> um, but to see that like slowly, um, not just a destination for like retail, but a destination for events. Yeah. Oh, right. Absolutely. And like, yeah, uh, not just cultural but fun things. Like I, mm -hmm. I feel like cultural sounds like so high. And trust me, I'm a big snob. I love high culture. But like this is just fun stuff like comedy, very crude and funny comedy. Um, to see that vibrant again in Newark is um, a good sign and hopefully something that will continue. Um, that's it for this episode. I want to thank a million thanks to our guest, Liz Del Tufo. This is Manny Antunes, host and producer of the Pod Market Podcast, editing and sound by Bob Fraze, podcast logo and design provided by Robert Conti, additional creative input by Samantha Cateus, pod intro and outro music by Dan Myler. If you have a subject you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please email podandmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So I'm going to end with a quote from a book that I read a, a couple of months back already, but <coughs> it came up in discussion when I was talking to um, Liz when I saw her last a uh, couple weeks ago, or, or not a couple weeks ago, last week. And um, this book um, is a history. It's called The Fire Is Upon Us. James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the debate over race in America. It is a, a deep history on the lead-up to this very famous debate that occurred in 1962. Let me get the year right. Um, 65, I'm sorry. So it was in 1965 um, between uh, William F. Buckley, who basically became the intellectual leader of the, of the new flavor of conservatism of the 60s and 70s and 80s, and James Baldwin, who is this uh, towering voice 
in um, uh, black uh, leftist politics of the 1960s and 70s. Um, and it's this this debate ended up becoming legendary because it was filmed. Um, and you have the two most, just not not just towering intellects, but also just the voices of the two. They had the two best voices outside of Hollywood um, that you could listen to. And um, it's a very deep history. Um, it's it, I don't want to say it's dry, but if you are a historian, you're very used to this style of writing. If you're not, it's still very good to read, but can be very um, deep in the weeds. But that's the whole point because it's intellectual history. And when you do intellectual history, you have to cover everything. Um, but uh, rather than reading from the history itself, what's cool is the back of the book has the transcript of this entire debate. And I once played this debate for a bunch of high school students and I was basically told, like, they're going to find it boring. Like, why would you show this to them? And they were enwrapped for an hour and a half. They watched the whole thing just because of the sonic quality and the the illusions of the voices. Um, and so I'm going to butcher the uh, – I'm not going to try to imitate James Baldwin, but I'm going to sadly not have that same sonic resonance. But I'm going to read you the opening paragraph when James Baldwin got up to speak in response to William F. Buckley. And the debate question was um, whether or not the uh, American dream is at the service uh, for the American Negro. And so this is Baldwin's opening line. Good evening. I find myself not for the first time in the position of a kind of Jeremiah. For example, I don't disagree with Mr. Buford that the inequality suffered by the American Negro population of the United States has hindered the American dream. Indeed, it has. I quarrel with some other things he has to say. The other deeper element of a certain awfulness I feel has to do with one's point of view. I have to put it that way. One sense, one system of reality. It would seem to me the proposition before the house, when I put it that way, is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro, or the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro, is a question hideously loaded, and that one's response to that question, one's reaction to that question, has to depend in effect, in effect on where you find yourself in the world what your sense of reality is, what your system of reality is. That is, it depends on assumptions which we hold so deeply as to be scarcely aware of them. Thank you.